from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, welcome. I'm Warren Odeschalette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Perspective is a radio program that examines contemporary issues using the principles of the Baha'i faith as a guide. I'm playing a pre-recorded interview with Ray Estes, a Baha'i from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. By trade, he is a commercial designer, but his first love he discovered was the Bible. At a very early age, his grandmother introduced him to the Bible, and he has been discovering new truths from that book ever since. I started out the interview by asking Ray where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. As I often say, uh, it all started out when I was extraordinarily young because uh, <laughs> I was born at a very tender age. <laughs> Actually, um, it has to go back a little bit before I was born because that kind of <laughs> sets the stage. Okay. <laughs> um, I come from a family, uh, predominantly uh, on my father's side, they were uh, German people. Mm-hmm who lived in Nebraska, where they lived in a German enclave, where they spoke German at home, Mm -hmm. spoke German at school, and spoke German at church, Mm. and sent to Germany for their newspapers during the 1930s. And what they got was German fascist propaganda, Mm. which became their understanding a lot of what the world was like. Mm. So they started out my father at a very young age heard all this kind of thinking and I have to say it influenced him to where he uh, fundamentally thought like a fascist Mm. he thought that Hitler should uh, be the victorious during the war and that America should come in on the side of Germany and fight the British so the whole enclave sort of had the same thinking? Well, it kind of got around that way. A lot of people thought that way. Mm-hmm. I'm sure not everybody, but it was a pretty strong viewpoint, mm-hmm. and my father took it to heart. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of resentment also during that time towards Roosevelt mm-hmm. because the farmers in that part of the world uh, were being asked to dr- help drive up the price of, of, of uh, consumer goods, in this case food, mm-hmm. uh, by destroying part of their crops so as to drive the price up. And my father resented this greatly, and he basically found a way to be very resentful of, uh, might say, democratic politics. And there was nobody far enough right for my father. He he wanted somebody really right. He thought Joe McCarthy was a hero. Mm. That gives you some idea of where he came from. Now, the Depression came and drove him off the farm, and so he went to Colorado, there he met a very lovely school teacher, and I think he fell in love with her beauty before he checked out her politics because she turned out to come from a family that were very leftist mm. in their thinking. Oh in fact, some members of the family had actually signed up as communists. And so my mother had not done that, but she was very socialistic in her thinking. Mm-hmm. So these two people get married, and I'm the product of this <laughs> union and the struggle that they had trying to get along and everything. And they argued a lot, but they loved each other. Mm-hmm. So coming from this background, as a young boy, um, my parents were not, like I say, were not getting along real well. 
And in this particular situation, the war came, World War II, and uh, my father had to go to work and actually wind up going into the army, and so I was home with my mother. Mm-hmm. And then they invited my grandparents to come live with them so they could work and take care of my brother and I, who were small boys. Mm. This set a stage that really altered my life because my grandmother was a sweet old lady mm-hmm. who loved the Bible. Okay. And when she found out my father and mother were not raising us to be religious, she had a hissy fit. <laughs> and she demanded that we be allowed to go to church. Mm. So she took us to the Lutheran church. And she turned me on to reading the Bible. She told me Bible stories. And for whatever reason, in a most abnormal way, I just took to the Bible like a duck takes to water. Mm. And I just knew all the stories, and I loved them. And I could read King James Version of the Bible like most people read the newspaper. And I don't know why this was, Mm. but I became very profoundly... um, how would I say it, in love with the history of Israel. Okay. And uh, as a result, it, it, I just became a walking, talking uh, uh, lover of the whole history of Israel. I knew all the stories. I knew Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 sons and stories of Joseph and Samson, David and Jonathan. And I just loved it all. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it, these were all Jews. And my father could not understand my fascination with Jews when he was so prejudiced Mm -hmm. as to say he wished that Hitler had finished the job and killed them all. Oh, boy. And I was, I I just couldn't believe my own father would say this. And I remember about 10 years old, something like that, I I said to my father, Dad, you're going to get us all cursed. What are you talking about? I said, Dad, the Bible says, he who curses Israel, God will curse. And he who blesses Israel, God will bless. I said, Dad, I don't want to get cursed. I want to be blessed. I'm for Israel. (laughs) Now, this is before the state of Israel, or right around the time when the state of Israel came into existence. Mm -hmm. My father didn't know what to do with me speaking like this. Mm. I told him I was ashamed of being German, that mm. if I had my druthers, I'd rather be Jewish. Oh my. And he didn't like that. But to his credit, he didn't give me... He, he actually enjoyed, I think, the, the back-and-forth debate. And he let me be me. He let me be his, as he put it, his bleeding-heart liberal son. So I was raised in an atmosphere of challenge, of, uh, we had an argument, I think, every day. I would read the newspaper to find out what I could find to to combat him. He would read the newspapers to combat me. And I went through my entire teenage years fighting with my father in a loving, confrontational, but exciting way. (laughs) Mm, So my life started out very strange on that part of it. Where did this love for the Bible take you? Well, at one point, uh, I had imagined that I might someday grow up to be a minister, mm-hmm. but that's before I discovered girls. And uh, that kind of took my mind off these religious matters. And you might say I started practicing uh, the study of a new book, uh, the, the book of um, the wonderful world of being with young women 
in so many wonderful ways. I thought God had done his work up well, that, that young girls were the most beautiful and wonderful thing ever on earth. But there's a part of my story that makes this a little more poignant. And that is that uh, uh, in my earlier years, when I was six years old, uh, my father, the war was over, and he went to Alaska to make money in the fishing industry. And he asked my mother to bring my brother and I to Alaska to be to live there where he had found this good employment. Mm-hmm. While there, my mother apparently got ill went into a makeshift hospital in this small town of Cordova, Alaska, with a population of about 300 people. She went into the hospital, and she never came back out. Mm. Something happened. My father refused to ever talk about it, never would share it with me. But she died there, and he was brokenhearted. Mm. And so he moved back to then Portland, Oregon, where I spent the next few years. But this greatly affected my life because now... Mm. I didn't have the balance between my mother and my father. I had my father, who I loved dearly, but was a rascal to be around. And then he uh, married another German lady this time. Mm. And uh, she uh, and I didn't always see eye to eye, to say the least. In fact, a lot of conflict. But in the end, um, let's just say I lived my teenage years trying to stay out of the house uh, spent my Friday nights dancing, and I was a disc jockey on my local high school radio station. Okay. And uh, my name at that time was not Ray Estes. It was Buck Fluger. That was the name I was born with. Okay. I, Along the way, and I'll share that later, All right. I dumped that name. But that was what I grew up with, and I was a disc jockey, and they called me Bouncing Buck. <laughs> <laughs> And dancing was my mm. forte. Okay. And in those days, that was rock and roll, Elvis-style dancing. Yeah. Now, I've seen you do the swing, swing <laughs> yeah. dancing. Yeah. I, I really took, in fact, I used to dance in dance contests. But that mm. was the world I went into. Mm-hmm. And religion faded during that period of time. Mm-hmm. Then one day, I looked in the mirror, age 18, almost 19, and realized that I had gotten away from things that mattered to me. And that I was throwing my life away, that Mm. I had gone so far into this wild world of drinking and carousing and partying that I had lost a sense of myself. Mm. And I once remember speaking in a mirror and I said, you know, your real problem is not that you're such a great lover, but you're very lonely Mm. and you're trying to find love and you're not finding it. And you know you're losing your life. Mm. I said this to myself in the mirror. Then I tell the story, and I, it's kind of humorous, but I was working, I was trying to go to school, and I was working at the same time on a part-time job as a shoe salesman. And I had to wear a suit and everything to this job. So I was working in a department store in San Diego, California. I moved to San Diego because I could be closer to Tijuana, Mexico, where there was lots of fun going on over there, and I thought that's where I needed to be. So you'd moved out of the house? Oh, I, I, on the day I graduated from high school, I was 17, my bags were on the front steps of the school, and as soon as I had my diploma, I went and grabbed my bags, threw them in my car, and I left, and I never went back to that home. And I eventually went back to see my 
father again, mm. but not for years. And um, it took us a long while before we could reconcile. Mm. But um, especially some of the turn events my life took. Mm-hmm. Because um, I uh, decided that I needed God in my life. And this particular day, I was feeling particular after I looked in the mirror and everything. I went to work, and then I went up to the men's room in this department store, went into one of the stalls, and knelt down between the toilet bowl and the wall. And I knelt down, and I prayed. I said, God, I need help. I need lots of help. I don't have any willpower. Mm. Uh, I'm having too much fun, but I know that this is not what I should be doing. And so I said, I'll make you a deal, God, if you're there. And I'm not sure you're there. And if you are there, I'm not sure you want anything to do with me. But if you, if you care about me, I'm, I'll make you a deal. I'm going to put my face down in this mess that's around the toilet bowl where sometimes men don't always have best eye shot, eye shot or they don't always hit where they're looking at. And I'm going to put my face down in this mess as a sign to you that I'm serious, that if you'll help me, mm-hmm. I promise to be a faithful human being to you. But I don't seem to have the willpower to do it myself. So I put my face down and it stuck to my forehead, my nose, my cheekbones. See, God, I remember seeing through the maze of it as I turned up, you know, please, God, I really am serious. Mm. I got up and washed my face and hands and went downstairs. You must have felt really desperate. I was feeling very desperate. I was feeling like my life was slipping through my fingers. Mm. I was a bright kid. I knew that you can't just live a life of fun and games, self-centeredness, and, and yes, go to school and everything, but with no real purpose or meaning. For whatever reason, I got that from those early days of reading about the biblical heroes who stood up for truth and justice and rightness in the past. Mm. And it had an effect on me. And um, it came through. I guess it's that old saying, if you raise a child a certain way, uh, he will not depart from it, had gotten through to me. Mm. To make a long story short, one of the ladies working in the department mentioned to me that she she says, you know, I, you're such a good kid and a bright kid, but to see you throwing your life away the way you are. On this particular morning, I'd come to work semi-drunk. And she says, just see you throw your life mm. away. And so, make a long story short, she invited me to her church. I told her that I didn't go to church because it was filled with hypocrites. Mm. And uh, I didn't want to go there. And so she says, well, there's, it's not true at my church. And I oh, yeah, come on. So I said, all right, I'll make you a deal. I'm going to go to your church, and I'm going to prove to you that everybody there is a hypocrite. So I purposely dressed with a T-shirt and a pair of jeans, which you don't go to church that way, particularly to most churches. And I took a comic book with me, and I sat in the back pew by the door where everyone would see me when they come in, opened up the comic book, and proceeded to read it while people filed into the church, knowing full well they would look at what is going on here, what's this kid doing, and uh, they would uh, start chit-chatting about it. I knew that would happen. Of course, that's what happened. Chit-chatting, everybody looking at me and poking, look, pointing their fingers, and the kids would look around and laugh and everything. And I, I was going to say, see, I told you they were a bunch of hypocrites. And just then, when the church filled up, an old a man came in, and he sat in the front row on the inside, so he was exactly opposite of me, but in the front, and I'm in the back. Mm. 
And he stood up and in front of all these people spoke to them in Italian. And everybody stood up and knelt down in front of their pews. So they were all facing me. And I refused, of course. I sat there. but I was the only person sitting up. And then the old man, kneeling down, and I could look right into his face, began to pray. And as he prayed, he was saying, Oh, Signore, blah, 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 blah. Oh, Signore. And I gathered that meant God. I looked in his face, and the tears were streaming down his face. Mm -hmm. And it struck me to the heart. It's like somebody stabbed me, with, but a pleasant stabbing. Mm. And it came to me, this man is no hypocrite. He's for real. Later on, I actually got to know this gentleman. I asked him, so uh, what were you praying for so passionately? He says, oh, Ray, didn't you know? I was praying for you. And uh, then he sat down. Everybody sat back up. And another old man got up and in broken English preached a sermon on the prodigal son. Mm. The son who wanted his inheritance early took his money, went to a far land, wasted it on fun and games, and when the money was gone, had no friends, was reduced to eating with the pigs in a trough. Mm. And then it came to him, why am I here? It'd be better to be a servant in my father's house than stay here. And he goes, as I'll go and live in my father's house as a servant. But every day the father would go out and look down the road to see if the boy was coming. Every day, nobody was there. Then one day he looked, and there was a speck in the distance. And he knew, that's my... And as a man in broken English said, ah, that's a, my son. He's coming home. He's a coming to me. And the, the, the son, he is here. He's a papa in the distance. And he knew, that's a, my a papa. He's a waiting for me. So they both begin to run, and they come into each other's arms. And the son says, you know, oh, papa, forgive me. And the papa says, you have forgiven him. I, you are my a son. I'm listening to this, you see. And, uh, and it just gets me to the head. And I stand up in that church. And I say, I am that boy. Mm. And I want to change. I want to give my life to Christ. I want to give my life to God. So I didn't know anything about this church. I didn't know anything about what they believed. I just knew this. I wanted to give my life to serve the Lord. Mm -hmm. So I became a born-again Christian that day. Mm. I was baptized in Mission Bay in San Diego, California, in front of hundreds of bathing beauties and everything. They took me to the beach, and there they baptized me, and hundreds of people. Of course, I was very proud to stand up for Christ at that time. Mm. And then I started really reading the Bible for real. Mm. But I had no one to tell me what I was supposed to think. I was coming like, like coming from a foreign nation and never... I knew the Old Testament, but I had never read the New Testament. Oh, really? So I read the New Testament and um, became greatly inspired. But a strange thing began to happen. I began to believe things that other Christians found strange, but I thought was perfectly logical. An example, the divinity of Christ the divinity of Jesus. I came to know that Jesus was the name of the person, which is, of course, it's Joshua in the Hebrew, in the actual language, it would have been Joshua. Jesus is a Greek name. Okay. But uh, that uh, Christ means basically the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah, not a first and last name. Mm. 
And then I started thinking about who Jesus Christ really was. And I remembered that at the burning bush, Moses is talking to a bush that's on fire. And the bush uh, tells Moses that he's supposed to go and see Pharaoh and you know the story. Mm-hmm. But eventually he comes around and he says, but when the people ask me, who has sent me, who shall I say has sent me? What is your name? And the voice says, I am that I am. Then it goes on to say, when the people ask you who has sent me, has sent you, say the, that I am has sent you. Has sent you. Mm. And that this is my name forever. This is a part you don't hear very often. Mm. And this is my name forever. Now, I thought about that for a minute. And then I remember Jesus saying things like, I am the bread of heaven. Mm. Okay. And about eating his flesh and drinking his, his blood. And, of course, the people said, what? Eat his flesh? You know, drink his blood? What matter nonsense is this? Mm. But he wasn't talking about literal. He was saying that the word of God is like bread. Mm-hmm. And we have to eat it and digest it and capture the spirit of it. Mm-hmm. So I begin to realize that Christ is the word of God, the spirit of God, the mm-hmm. power of God. And Jesus is the burning bush, only he's a walking, talking mm-hmm. burning bush. Mm-hmm. And I knew that we don't believe that God is a bush because a bush talked to Moses we understand that the spirit and power of God used the bush. Okay. It dawned on me that Jesus was the vessel by which God's image, God's spirit, God's character, God's love shone through to the people and showed us what a perfect human being would be like. Okay. And as a result, I began to share this idea with people. Mm-hmm. And then the final two pieces that came to be was where they uh, speak of I am the way, the truth, and the life. Mm-hmm. All right. No one cometh to the Father but by me. Mm-hmm. I begin to understand is the spirit and power of God. The I am is the word of God by which mankind can get to God is mm-hmm. through the word of God and obeying it. Mm-hmm. But Jesus was demonstrating it. Okay. So, uh, from there, uh, I uh, took up the idea that uh, that Jesus and Christ are, on one hand, one, and on another hand, two distinct aspects. That God is a spirit. Jesus said, God is a spirit and must be worshipped in spirit. But man wants to make God sometimes out of wood, mm-hmm. sometimes out of stone, and sometimes try to make flesh and blood God. We haven't even seen God, let alone that God is flesh and blood. Blood. Mm. So as a result, I started saying these things, and of course people got a little upset with me. Then finally the thing that really did it for me was one place where Jesus was engaged in conversation, and they were claiming that they were the sons of Abraham, and Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. That did it for me, because that really said it. The I am is the word of God, as in John, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Mm-hmm. Now, I begin to realize that the word of God was before Abraham, it was with God, but it manifests itself at the burning bush, and in this case, through Jesus of Nazareth. Mm-hmm. 
Jesus was the instrument. So that when men came and said, good master, he said, don't call me good. Only my father's good. He didn't want us worshiping outward form. Mm -hmm. He wanted us to worship the spirit and power of God himself. Mm. And that he was showing us what that looked like when a human being demonstrated it. So uh, then finally, the last thing that really got me in trouble with the clergy was I came to the passage where Jesus says, Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one fold and one shepherd. Oh, I thought to myself, that's the I am speaking through Jesus saying that that voice that's speaking through Jesus now mm. will go to other communities because a fold is a community, mm. a mm -hmm. godly community. Right. It's, some people think it's the Gentile, but they were not a community. They were the unbelievers. Mm. But there were other folds. That convinced me the spirit and power of God has been everywhere. Mm. that every tribe has heard the voice in one way or another to some degree to guide men to justice, to guide men to love, to caring, to honesty, to integrity, to nobility. That doesn't mean we always respond, and not mm. always that we respond well as mm. evidenced by our own history. Mm. But it convinced me that to think that we who are Christians, who love Christ with all our heart, but that we're the only ones the voice of truth is spoken to is rather self-centered. Mm. So I became, he might say, an advocate that other communities should be looked upon with respect and to know that God, too, was working somewhere in their world. Mm. And uh, as a result, uh, well, to make a long story short, I was found to be a problem to the community because I, I believe this way. Mm. And I was starting to influence the youth. Mm. I myself was a youth. I was mm. 24. Mm -hmm. And the church decided that I was persona non grata. And they held a trial, a literal trial, where they brought prosecution and prosecuted me as a heretic and condemned me as a man no longer desirable in the Christian community. And uh, they asked me if I had any last words before they pronounced judgment. And I said, yes, well, I can say that to be condemned by men such as yourselves must be a wonderful honor before God. And I'm proud to be here. Hmm. So that's how I was cast out. So then where did your journey take you after that? Well, I went from church to church. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was only right that I share my strange understanding where I went, mm -hmm. to see if they could have fellowship with me. Mm -hmm. And frankly, no one really wanted much fellowship with me mm -hmm. because I was strange. I was believing in a kind of unorthodox way, but I I was faithful to, to Christ my Lord, mm -hmm. and uh, I, uh, I considered myself a born-again Christian. Mm -hmm. However, I was, shall we say, companionless. Okay. And then one day I met a young woman in Eugene, Oregon, who was dressed in an Indian leather outfit, mm. moccasins and all, mm. with a band in her, around her forehead with a feather in it. But she was red-haired and freckled. In other words, she was no Indian. Mm. 
And, of course, I was curious. I walked up to her and said, now, there's got to be a story behind this. I'd like to know the story. And so I got introduced to a hippie. That okay. was my first real inter interaction. And this is 1966. Okay. And so she told me her story. And, and then I told her my story. And she said, well, you know, she says, I know what your problem is. And, well, what's my problem? What do you mean my problem? She's, well, you're not a Christian like other Christians. Mm. She says, you're actually a Baha'i. And I said, a what? She says, well, you're a Baha'i. I said, I never even heard of it. How could I be one? She says, no, I can tell. She says, I said, well, are you a Baha'i? No, she says, I'm a Presbyterian. <laughs> but I know a Baha'i when I see one. And when I hear what you, your story is, there's no doubt in my mind, you're a Baha'i. I says, listen, I don't want anything to do with some weird Eastern cult. She says, oh, no, they look like normal people. And uh, she says, in fact, she says, I'm going to invite the Baha'is over to my house, and I'd like you to come and meet them. I said, no way. I am not going to go meet. Oh, she says, then you're a hypocrite. What do you mean I'm a hypocrite? She says, well, I just told you that there's a whole bunch of people who think like you, and you don't even want to meet them. So how serious are you? Oh, yeah, well, you're right. Okay, I'll come. And so I knew chapter of my life came about because I went to this mm. meeting and I was very skeptical. Mm. I, anything with a weird name like Baha'i can't be right as far as I was concerned. You know, I'm a good old Yankee. I, mm. Everything's got to be, you know, good old American English. So this just mm. didn't. But to be fair, I first told them where I was coming from and then I invited them to share with me. And um, the lady that was doing the talking she said to me, well, we had run out of time because I had talked so long earlier. There wasn't much time left. So she thought she'd give me the fast version. So she basically said, well, Baha'is are people from all manner of background, from all races, all cultures, all religious histories, who have come together. And we have three major beliefs. Number one, that there's only one God. This is the God of justice. This is the God of love. This is God of truth. This is the God of mercy. This is the God of wisdom. And this is the God that created us and wishes us to be of similar spirit and, and character. And that this God has been called every name. God, the Great Spirit, Allah, uh, you name it, Jehovah. There's a lot of names. God is less interested in what we call him than that we believe he is and exists and that he is, or as he said, I am. Mm -hmm. And she didn't say that term, but I caught that. Mm -hmm. And then she said, and God is a reality that no one can describe or know other than his characteristics. But the reality of God is outside of human comprehension. Mm. God is the essence of reality, but is indescribable as far as his actual nature. So no one can claim that they have a fix on this. Mm. In that sense, we are all left to only know about God, what God reveals to us, 
when he wishes to reveal, he reveals different aspects of reality. Mm -hmm. And what it came down to was the second principle, that God reveals himself through what the Baha'is call a manifestation of God, a person who is prepared by God to be a vessel of communication of his truth and his spirit at the degree that the people are ready to hear it. Mm. And some of those are people we have heard of, everybody from Noah to Abraham to Moses to Jesus. And then they said, and Muhammad Mm. and the Buddha and, you know, many others. And that they are the manifestors of the will, purpose, and truth that God wishes the people to know, depending on their stage of development. Mm-hmm. Basically, a concept of evolutionary progress. Mm-hmm. And that uh, what we love is the truth or the word they speak, and yet we respect and love the vessel, but it's the word that is the power and might of God that we need to respond to. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's a fabulous way of saying it. That all the religions, fundamentally the truer ones that teach this, this spiritual truth of justice, love, compassion, etc., integrity, mm-hmm. uh, justice, that these are all coming from the same source. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, it just makes sense. Because I had gone through this where if you think about it, if you're born in the middle of India, your chances mm. are you're going to be a Hindu. If you're born in Saudi Arabia, great chance you're going to be a Muslim. And like if you're born in North Carolina, where I'm from, you're probably going to be a Baptist. Mm. If you're born in Italy, you had a very good chance of being a Roman Catholic. If you're born in Germany, you're liable to be, in most part, a Lutheran. Now, not absolutely, mm. but say 85% or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it can't be that you wind up being right because you happen to be born in a good location. Truth cannot be that way. Mm. If there's anything we know, four and four is eight in China, in America, I don't care where you go, it's universal. Mm. I knew in my heart, truth is universal. Mm. I had read enough to know that. And I also came to the conclusion that the God I loved and believed in, the God of Israel, the God of Jesus was a God of universal acceptance, mm. a God that, that I believed was the God of the whole earth. And so I, I just welcomed this understanding. I never felt comfortable with the idea that because we had a certain way of thinking that Jesus died on the cross and therefore we get to go to heaven and everybody else fries, mm. just did not sit with mm. me. Mm-hmm. And so I welcomed this thought. And then the third one, was a little different. They said, there's only one race, the human race, and that all the peoples of the earth, our differences are climatic in nature, depending on our climate, mm. on our environment. We look and... But essentially, which science has come to support since then, genetically, we are one species. Mm-hmm. And our differences are minimal. And that that then follows through is this. Years ago, we lived in separate little worlds, the Roman world, the Chinese world, 
the American Native American world, and and we didn't even know about each other, or we knew mm-hmm. so little it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. So we had different religions and different communities and different histories. But the modern world in the last 150 years has suddenly been shrunk mm. by modern travel and communication mm-hmm. to where these worlds are now banging up against each other. Mm-hmm. We have a choice. Our world is better than your world. We're better than you are. Mm-hmm. We are loved by God. You are not. Or at least God's got you. You're second rate. Or we open our mind and heart as Christ would have done. Mm-hmm. And open to the other and seeing that he and she are like us. Now, you said this was hard to... No, this was easy for me to take. But I knew it was a very challenging idea oh, and okay. has been a challenging idea. Okay. In other words, we've been warring and killing mm-hmm. over these issues of differences. Mm-hmm. When the Baha'is were telling me that the new truth is that we have to recognize the oneness of mankind. Mm-hmm. And then they said a passage that I really liked. He said... The earth is a single country, and mankind are its citizens. Mm. And, I mean, it just moved me to the core. I knew Mm. this is true. Mm -hmm. We don't belong keeping ourselves isolated and provincial. Mm -hmm. It's time for us to do the Star Trekian thing. Uh. (laughs) The United Federation of the Planet Earth. That's (laughs) obviously, and they were saying this is a Baha'i teaching. Mm. I thought this was fantastic. Then they told me some principles that really solidified it. The days of male domination over women have ended. Mm-hmm. And that women are to take their rightful place beside men. Mm. And those teachings in the Bible that say that man, the woman was created for man, man was not created for woman, are of a past age. The concept, as God is to Christ, Christ is to man, man is to woman, it puts women in not the best light because mm. I don't think there's a man around that considers themselves even close to being uh, in, the, in the station of Christ. Mm. So as a result, there's a big gap there mm-hmm. and that that should not be the case between man and woman. Mm-hmm. And if you ask, I always say this, if you don't believe this, ask your mother. She'll help you out in, with this understanding. And if you're still a little confused, ask your wife about this. I think she'll be able to help you grasp the the importance of this sense of equality. Mm -hmm. But if you still don't get it, I promise you, as being a father of three daughters, if you ask your daughter about this, she will clearly straighten you out on this matter, Mm -hmm. that the equality of men and women is for real. Mm -hmm. And so I, I remember what Paul had said. He said, when I was a child, I spake as a child, thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Mm. Religious superstition has got to come to an end. Interpreting the Bible and those stories literally rather than symbolically. Mm. Talking animals has passed away. Mm. It wasn't that animals and snakes and things used to talk and now suddenly they shut up. Mm-hmm. It's that that was the way in those days we communicated. As a result, they're stories of symbolic value, not to be taken literally. And so um, I had already come to this conclusion before Mm -hmm. I ever heard of the Baha'i faith. Mm -hmm. So when they told me that science 
and religion or reason and faith must agree. Mm. Not that there aren't things in faith that you don't always know about, but it's still reasonable. Mm. But the idea of witches and demons and a guy running around with a pitchfork making us do things we don't want to do, mm. that those are relics of a past childish understanding. Mm. Now that we've entered the modern world, we have to look at these things with new eyes mm. so we know who the enemy really is. The enemy is not out there somewhere. Mm. The enemy and the friend are the person you shave in the morning. Mm. And uh, that was mm. a new, and I loved the idea. The problems of the world are me. <laughs> and the solution to the world is God's spirit in my heart, mm. giving me the power to overcome myself mm. so that the whole world can become free. If every one of us realizes that's the answer, Mm-hmm. We can solve the problems of the world in working together. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I heard this, and I said, this is the most beautiful thing I have ever heard. Mm. And, of course, then I wanted to know where it came from. And, and um, so I decided to take a book, mm-hmm. and I said to the Baha'is, there's one of two things. Either this is a beautiful lure, mm. and you want my money, or this is the most wonderful thing that's happened to resolve the problems and dilemma of religion in the modern world. And I'm going to come back next time with an answer of which way it is. Mm-hmm. I'm going to find out about you people. So I took my book home. And uh, a little incident happened that was kind of interesting. My wife was baking cookies when I came home. And I came in, I said, Joanne, I'd like to talk to you about this. I had a fascinating evening. And she said to me, well, right now I'm baking cookies. And if you wouldn't mind, I'd like you to go over there and look at Grandma's recipe and and see what happens after I put the chocolate chips in. (laughs) I said, Joanne, I want to talk to you about important things. Please put the cookie dough down. And she said, Ray, cookies now, religion later. And as any man of been married any length of time understands well when mama speaks like this one gets in line Mm. so I went over to grandma's now grandma's recipe had been cut out of a newspaper some 20 or 30 years earlier and it was on a pretty good sized piece of paper and I picked up the recipe backwards and I was reading on the back side of grandma's recipe and there was a picture of the Baha'i Center in in Chicago and a list of the teachings of the Baha'i faith underneath it. Oh, my God. And in all my days, I had never heard of the Baha'i faith, never seen anything about it. I come home from my first meeting, pick up Grandma's recipe, and there it is, and my knees kind of wavered a little bit. And, of course, I thought, hmm, so, God, are you trying to tell me something? Now, I went through a real wrestling match because what I read was beautiful. Mm-hmm. But it was different. Mm-hmm. A lot of references to Muslims as being also God's people. Mm-hmm. And the Quran being the word of God, along with the New Testament and the Old Testament, mm-hmm. which was all foreign to me. And, and so that, that was a little troublesome at first, until I read what it actually said in the Quran, and it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm really getting troubled. And then I thought to myself, you know, for 2,000 years... We've been saying in our churches Mm. how they should have seen who Jesus was, Mm. how they should have known. 
and that because they didn't, God was punishing them, etc. And I always used to wonder, you see, you know, when you read back and saw what they were expecting, they were expecting the Lord to come as a Messiah in the sky with an army of angels. They believed that Elijah was going to come first, and he'd gone to heaven in a fiery chariot, so they expected a fiery chariot to come down out of heaven, and Elijah would get out and announce that the Messiah was coming. Mm-hmm. Well, if you saw a fiery chariot coming out of the sky, sky landing downtown Jerusalem, who wouldn't believe, you know? Mm. And and they had all these beliefs. He would conquer with the sword. He would destroy the enemies of Israel. He'd establish Israel as a as a ruler, so to speak, of the world, mm-hmm. the dispensers of God's truth. And when they got instead a man riding on a donkey entering the city of Jerusalem and some people claiming him to be the Messiah, this just did not go down well. He just did not live up to their expectations. Mm. And it dawned on me that that's how we think. We're waiting for the truth to come to us, the return of Christ, in a similar fashion. Mm. And I thought to myself, wouldn't it be just like God to do a sneaky thing like this? To do to us, the Christians, that the Messiah Mm. comes as an ordinary, humble, appearing human being, but speaking such truth such beauty, so much profound understanding so as to change our perception of life and reality and turn this wastebasket of, of human society into a beautiful garden of humanity. Mm. I thought, just like God to do it like this. Mm. And so I said, I must be careful what I do here. Mm. I don't want to be one of those that stones him symbolically. Mm-hmm. And so I really took serious now what I did. And all I can say is in five days of reading, praying, mm. crying, pleading with God for wisdom, it came like a, a flash. Mm. And I, I actually had this, I said, it's just like the spirit and truth of God is descending from heaven. Mm. And I, as a man, a seeker, seeking truth am reaching out towards God. And it's like I'm, rising up in my heart to meet this truth coming down. Mm. And I realized this is, I'm being raptured. <laughs> and in, an, in that moment, I realized that all that I'd ever hoped for had happened. Mm. And that in a moment, a twinkling of an eye, I became a person who saw things so much differently, so much mm. more beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I realized I was being called of God to share this beautiful truth Mm. with whatever heart is open to hear it. Mm. And uh, let's just say, what an adventure it's been Mm -hmm. since that day of June the 7th, 1966, which is almost 40 years ago. Mm. And uh, I have many, many stories to share. Mm-hmm. about this journey mm-hmm. but uh, I'm now 66 years old mm. and I can only say I have had a absolutely wondrous adventure many many things have happened and uh, I am so grateful to God that mm. I should have the privilege of being able to see this reality mm. and uh, to be able to share it with people 
Can you envision what your life would have been like if you had not run into the Baha'i faith? I probably would have went somewhere in line, I think, lost um, the vision because I, I couldn't reconcile what my heart was feeling with the mm. doctrines and things of the church. Mm. And like I say, I was vulnerable. Mm. And the call of the life pulling me back into uh, the life of, of earthly pleasures mm -hmm. was starting to loom up. And I began to realize. Now, at first I thought that this was the city of Los Angeles, which, of course, it probably contributed to it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you can't find a home... When you can't find resolution to your reason in your heart, your faith, and your knowledge, mm -hmm. it leaves you vulnerable because you, are, you lose your strength when you can't firmly believe. That's why fundamentalists are so firm. They have to. They have to be firm. They can't allow themselves to think lest they find themselves, quote-unquote, doubting. Mm -hmm. And they can't separate doubting earthly ways of seeing things from the true spiritual reality sometimes. Mm -hmm. That's the danger. We, so we, we turn to fundamentalists to feel secure because we're afraid to think. This is why uh, the problem when Jesus taught in Israel, mm -hmm. but taking a chance on this, this carpenter who didn't live up to any of the things that they hoped for mm -hmm. and put their whole lives and their souls on the line to believe that this Jesus of Nazareth was going to open up the truth to them was scary. Mm -hmm. Only a fraction of people had the courage to do it. And most of those were poor, uneducated people because the educated class relied on their knowledge of the Bible, which in their understanding completely contradicted everything that Jesus stood for because mm. they interpreted it literally and the Christians were interpreting it uh, spiritually. A, a good example of this is the story of Elijah. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can't get enough of this story, but the point was that the Bible said Elijah would come first. The Israeli people were waiting for Elijah. Elijah got out of heaven in a fiery chariot. And uh, then one day a man appeared in their midst who was, interestingly enough, like Elijah in this way. Elijah lived at a time of a wicked king Ahab and Jezebel. He prophesied against them. They chased him into the wilderness where he let his hair grow out. He dressed in animal skins, had a big belt around him and carried a staff. And he'd hide in the woods and then he'd come out and preach to the people. And when they, their authorities would come, he'd flee back in the wilderness. And we know how he looked because it's described in the Bible what, what uh, Elijah looked like. Now, what's interesting is now hundreds of years later, a man named John comes, and he lives at the time of a wicked king, Herod. And he starts prophesying against Herod and his wicked wife. And they become mad at him. And they send out to kill him. He goes into the wilderness. His hair grows out. He dresses in animal skins. wears a big belt around his tummy. And he has a staff. And he eats locusts and honey to stay alive. And he comes out and preaches to the people. And then he flees back into the wilderness. But when they came to him and said, Are you Elijah? He said, No. I am one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Now the disciples were there. Some of the disciples were there. They heard this. Later on, they became disciples of Jesus. 
And they came to Jesus and said, Lord, we know who you are, but where is Elijah? Mm. And Jesus said an interesting thing that we need to pay attention to now because he's telling us when it says in the Bible, the return, how it works. He said, the people have eyes, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. But you have eyes to see and ears to hear. Know this, John was he. Mm. Then he goes on to explain that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah, not the physical person. Now, this is when we can really understand that if you take the Bible and interpret it literally and don't capture the spirit of it and the symbol of it, you make a huge error. Mm. For example, a good example is Jesus' name. It was supposed to be Emmanuel. And when he came out with the name Jesus, he said, well, where's Emmanuel? Well, if you go a little deeper, you find out Emmanuel means God with us. And so if you believe that Christ was God with us, in that his spirit of Christ was speaking through Jesus, then his problem was solved. Well, that's our problem today. Mm. It, we either learn how to see with eyes that see mm. and hear with ears to hear, or we will be left in confusion, as I believe I was. Uh, I would have been lost in time, mm. but God rescued me because I really wanted to know. Mm. So, again, the adventure continued. Okay. Thank you, Ray. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ray Estes, a Baha'i from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, who's a commercial designer by trade, and gleaning truths from the Bible is his passion. I'll be playing subsequent interviews with Ray where he shares his thoughts on specific topics from the Bible. If you want specific information on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. I'm afraid that's all we've got 
WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. 
your Valley Free Radio Station.